This is the story of my drive with Ryan Sayer. With Ryan Sayer. Hello and welcome to the story of my drive. My name is Ryan Sayer, a music producer and podcast editor at Marvelous Audio. What's on today? I'm interviewing a tutor at Leeds College of Music, a composer and also a music producer, Simon McGrath. Ever wondered how it's like to be a professional music producer? Years of experience, tons of recordings done, including one in a shipping container and some interesting stories from his youth. So without chatting nonsense, fasten your seatbelt and check out my guest of the week. The guest of this week is Simon McGrath. 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 <laughs> I don't know. It's a silent TH at the end. It's a, All right. It's an Irish thing. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Are you Irish? Third generation Irish, yeah. Still cons. So my, my grandfather was from Waterford. And I've also got, I think, my great, 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 or some of my great, 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 great grandparents on my mum's side were from Galway originally. So I'm, there's a lot of history there. All right. <laughs> my first question would be, what do you do as a musician, producer? What, well, what do I do? I do lots of different things. Do you want a, a kind of a quick brief history of how I got into it, like the ten cent Tour, as it were? Yeah. Okay, this is my standard spiel. Uh, no, it's not really. <laughs> I basically got into music as a about 13, 14 years old as a, a, a guitarist. Obviously listened to a lot of music before then, quite influenced by my parents' record collection, things like that, specifically my mum's record collection. My dad wasn't really into kind of music in a big way, but my mum had quite a good, interesting record collection. And I started playing guitar in a band with my brother and some friends at about 14 years old. And which one of those bands which gradually we kind of obviously got better, as most bands do. We started off really, really badly. and <laughs> did some really interesting things together. And then by the time we kind of finished with that band, I'd, I'd moved on to start playing in blues bands. I played in blues bands for about 15 years altogether. So I was a blues harmonica player. All right. Uh, that's, my, that's my background. But I also play guitar as well. I also play mandolin too. But that's the kind of music I was really into, was was blues. And I toured around as a blues musician for quite about, say, about 15 years. I did a lot of touring up and down the Am Britain. I played over in Europe quite a lot. Uh, went over to the States a couple of times for a couple of small tours. So nothing major, mm -hmm. but just a lot of travelling about. I became a, you know, quite a, a big travelling musician, really. And then while I was doing that, I got back together with my brother, who's the singer in the original band, and we started songwriting together. So I was kind of touring off doing blue stuff, but we started writing pop songs together, right. carrying on where we left off with the band, essentially. <laughs> and, but while it was while we were doing that, I really got into the actual production side of things. We were recording everything on four-track machines at the, in the, at the start of it. Gradually kind of upgraded to a computer, and I, that's when I realised that production was the thing that I really wanted to get involved in, much more so than the songwriting, much more so than the, the actual live performing. I'd always enjoyed being in recording studios when we'd gone in as amateur musicians. I really liked the fact that you could record something and if you didn't play it properly, you could go back and do it again, which is always really good for someone who's not a really brilliant musician. That's how I got into production. And then I decided at that point, this was the late 90s, I wanted to come to college to learn how to do it. And so I was a student just like you at Leeds College of Music. I started as a an HND student, which is very similar to the FD course that we have now. And then I had to do two years top up on the, the BA course to do the degree course. And while I was here, I met a guy who became my business partner and we decided that we would set up a studio together, essentially. A commercial recording studio on the far side of Leeds and it was also a music production company. We worked for about 10, 12 years together 
and that was kind of how I really got into it. Really, just got. Is it still uh, happening? Uh, no, not that that partnership and that business is not happening anymore. That finished round about sort of. 2011, 2012. We mm. still, we still talk to each other. We're still friends. We didn't fall out. But again, it, we were both doing other things outside of the studio as well as having the studio. And actually, it mm. got to the point where we didn't really want the idea of having to look after a building and, and everything that goes with that. Essentially, at that point, we moved all the stuff into a different studio where there, were, there was a lot of rehearsal rooms. There was a recording studio there, and I worked freelance from there. Mm. You know, up until very recently, I've been in there. Just doing tracking bands, working with artists. So still out there doing little bits now. Most of my time now is spent here as a senior lecturer. Came back home. Yeah, I mean, well, my relationship with Leeds College of Music actually goes back in a more professional capacity. Goes back right into the sort of mid noughties where we both, myself and my business partner, came back in as industry partners and started talking to the students about our experiences. And it wasn't until 2011 that I came back and started doing a little bit of tutoring in the studios, mm-hmm. and then it got to be more and more hours then I moved on to doing the second year music production students in the studio now I also teach on the both final projects and third year specialist study three uh, and I'm also a curriculum manager so I've kind of become institutionalised I'm sort of stuck here really <laughs> no more freelancing so over the past sort of don't know, 15-20 years I've uh, worked with loads of different bands in studio situations I've done quite a lot of music for things like film TV corporate videos anything to do with sound and music so we do a lot of sound design or we did a lot of sound design for uh, various things worked a lot in theatre so I've done quite a lot of composition for theatre, a lot of sound design for theatre, theatre production. I've actually been off on tour with the theatre companies as well. But yeah, so a lot of theatre sound design, and that was that was where a lot of my kind of bread and butter work was, certainly over the last 10 years. Doing some really interesting projects, some really avant-garde stuff. When you say, what do you do? I'm a tutor, but I'm also a producer, composer, sound designer, recording engineer, tea maker, extraordinaire, whatever I need to do, basically. Tea maker <laughs> is my favourite. Whatever gets me through the day. <laughs> How high would you rate your tea? My tea, 10. 10. Every time. Solid. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a degree in it. <laughs> degree in tea making. Yeah. So that's, uh, I think that's what I, I would describe myself as. Does that answer question one? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we can move on. Any goals for the future related to the college or your freelance work or anything, or tea making? Goals for the future is just to make the ultimate cup of tea. Really, all right. Um, this is—I mean, this is something that comes up in in a lot of lectures, actually, and it seems like I might be joking sometimes. The reality is that when I'm certainly when I'm mixing, and you know, if I'm, I've got a mix room at home, and if I'm mixing, I find that it's in, in, important to have that time away from the mix because my ears get tired really easily. And as tea making uh, saving your music, yeah, absolutely. So without the tea making, the mix would just be useless, really. I think the key for me, and I think I think this affects me more as I get older as well, that I just need to have more breaks within the mix process. More tea. And so tea, and usually, you know, if tea is involved, usually biscuits will be involved as well. Obviously. So, you know, there's a whole other podcast <laughs> that we could talk about when it comes to biscuits. I guess that's why British music is so good, because everyone drinks tea. So exactly. Mixes are useless. Exactly. We realise the importance of the time spent away from the mix, and that could be tea, biscuits, household chores. <laughs> <laughs> Everything gets done because important lesson for our aspiring producers: make tea. Learn how to make tea properly. You. I think that's one of the things where you know historically it would always be in a in a, a studio situation. You'd have the exec producers, producers, engineers, assistant engineers, blah blah, blah right down to the tea boy. And actually, <laughs> tea boy didn't realise how important that job was. <laughs> uh, the question that you're asking me is. 
what are my goals for the near future? My goal... Um, maybe you achieved everything. No, I've not. What I'd really like to do is start to write more music again and spend time being a bit more creative, which I just don't have time to do anymore, especially for my own personal mm -hmm. game, my own personal music. If I look back to when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I would spend sometimes four to six hours a day playing a guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, writing music, just learning new songs, learning songs by other people, just for my own enjoyment, really, and but also practicing as well and getting. To, but and I just don't have time to do any of that stuff anymore. And so I think, you know, over the last few years, I've been really thinking when it gets to certainly the summertime when we've got to have a bit of a break from from college. I always say, right, I'm going to I'm going to write some music now. I'm going to get the instruments out, get the, everything set up in the room, and I just never get around to it because unfortunately, when I got married, I had not only gained a wife and a life partner, but I also gained a list. A list. A list, yeah. And this list just never ends. I never get to see the list. All right. Uh, it goes on and on forever, <laughs> and new things appear on this list all the time. And as soon as we get to any point in the year where I, maybe not where I'm not working, but when I look like I'm not busy, my wife gets the list out. And she will, and she'll say, right on the list this week is is this. I don't have a wife yet, but I guess that's what wives do. Well, always something, again, again, this, something this to is do something to that's fix. always open to debate, and uh, I'm sure there's again, there's another podcast there somewhere. <laughs> but the the list goes on, so that could be one of the things. But also, it might just be motivation. You know, my, I think. As you get older, your priorities change. Your ability to spend time doing those things that you did when you're younger change. Suddenly, children come into the equation. Mortgages, car, you know, all this kind of, mm -hmm. all the boring rubbish in life, basically. <laughs> boring but necessary. <laughs> That's one of my goals is is really to kind of write some more of my own music and be be creative in that sense just for my own satisfaction. I'm not aspiring to be a pop singer. I'm not aspiring to be a big star. It's Although just to, we would love to see this. I'm sure, <clears throat> I'm sure everybody would. Uh, but just for my own satisfaction, really. And one day, all this, all these ideas that are in my head, they're all going to come out. So prepare. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of your work, freelance college and stuff, are you proud? Yes. Or do you feel satisfaction? I am. Any piece of work that I do, I always have this kind of rationale behind the, anything that I do is that I'm going to do it as, as well as I can because otherwise there's just no point. You're wasting your time, really. And I like to think that I put my all into everything. I always do my best. Maybe my best isn't as good as someone else's best. And that's cool. We can't all be the best producer in the world, you know. But I always give give it my best and that's whether I'm working on a project outside of college, whether I'm just in a, a studio with a, a young band, whether I'm in a studio with a solo artist, if I've got to play an instrument on that particular recording or if it's me arranging other musicians to come in or whether I'm in a studio tutoring some students on large format consoles and desk architecture, signal flow, or talking about, uh, you know, lecturing about something completely different to second or third year students. I always like to think I'm doing my best. Whether it's always good enough, I'm not sure. But I keep turning up and they keep paying me, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's what counts. So hopefully, you know, I'm on the right track with it. In answer to your question, are you proud of what you're doing? Yes, I am proud of what I'm doing. What I love to see in, certainly in a tutoring sense, is when you see those pennies drop with students when they're in a studio situation and they suddenly realise what you're saying and why you're saying it and the impact it can have on the quality of recording potentially. And that's not just from the, I suppose, from a technical point of view, but, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about in the studio and up into third year when we go beyond the technical stuff, it's more about the psychological stuff. It 
it's people learning how to be one of the many different things that a producer is. And just things like being able to talk to your artist properly and to maintain engagement in a session and keep the, the vibe and the, the level of excitement up in a recording session. It can be a really sterile environment, a recording studio. And it's difficult sometimes if people are tired or they're not getting the, the notes right that they're singing or people are out of tune all the time. Or they think they know your job better than you do. Yeah, or, I, I mean... situations like this when the artists try to tell me how to record and have you checked the face? Yeah. Or Again, that, that happens a lot and it's mainly because recording is so accessible now. You know, everybody can have a, a laptop with running Logic or Pro Tools or whatever and... Uh, everyone's got an idea of recording even if they're just doing it at home and outside the studio and that's, it's all valid you know we all do that we can get some brilliant results but like I say that can be something that, that crops up where people bring their knowledge to the table and sometimes that can be a really good thing sometimes, sometimes. you know I'm, I'm, I, I always say that every day is a school day I'm willing to learn from everyone and even sometimes I'll be in the studio with first year students who have just got certain key commands that they're using Pro Tools or Logic and I'll be like oh yeah that's really cool mm-hmm. and sometimes we just learn things by happy accident as well with this, all the the kind of serendipitous stuff that happens in a studio sometimes is because someone suggested something else although sometimes that can seem quite annoying you've also got to learn how to deal with that as a producer it's another thing that you have to be able to deal with you know not just artist liaison and developing your bedside manner as it were when you're talking to artists in the and, and maintaining the energy and the vibe that's another aspect is that people will be trying to tell you your job and how do you deal with that you only learn how to deal with that by doing it it's this idea of tacit knowledge and learning on the job and learning from experience and that goes into the next level of, of not only the psychology but also the philosophy of being a music producer and where all that knowledge comes from we can start start then studying knowledge and and how you know i can tell you exactly what frequency response a microphone's got but i can't tell you how to react if someone's trying to sing something they can't do it and they just start crying in the studio <laughs> You know, you've got to be in that situation to learn how to do it. There's a lot of different levels and layers that gradually, as we get beyond the technological side of it, it's great to see those pennies dropping with people about those are also the important things to learn about, really. In answer to your question, uh, yes, I am proud of my work. (laughs) Very good. If you you are, I would would feel a bit bad. (laughs) You are, so that's fine. About your work again, or your life, and inspirations? Yes, I mean, lots of inspirations. Specifically, from a a musical point of view, I was very heavily influenced just by a lot of blues musicians when I was younger. Not just kind of, you know, going away from production for a moment, but I I found great inspiration from people like Muddy Waters and Big Bill Brunsey, Sonny Boy Williamson, uh, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee. These are all people that I just thought were absolutely amazing. I loved the feel of the music, and that was that. That was the fundamental thing. It was just the feel that went with it. And the more I kind of got into this kind of music. I got into the history of it, the kind of social, historical, political context of what blues music was to a lot of kind of black American musicians in the deep south of America in the, you know, right through the, the early 20th century and uh, right up to the 60s and probably and still is today, to be honest. It's really interesting to see the influence that they've had on a lot of British music particularly rock music and how that rock music is still filtering through and those influences still fil- filtering through to rock music today and pop music today but that seems to be where a lot of that those ideas stem from that kind of music just spoke to me straight away through that kind of music you know I mean, there are a lot of different producers that i could name who have been influential in terms of as a producer myself and it's all the usual suspects but one person in particular 
that kind of came through the whole the blues thing was a guy called Alan Lomax. He was the guy that first recorded Lead Belly. In fact, him and his father got Lead Belly out of prison. Mm-hmm. So Lead Belly was a kind of more country blues artist, really. But again, more, more kind of American folk than straight blues. But also, Alan Lomax was the first person to go down to deep south of America in the 1940s and record people like Muddy Waters and Sun House and various other people. He also went searching for Robert Johnson, but he died before he, he actually got down there. But the more I got into Alan Lomax and the more research that I did into him, I realised that he is probably one of the most influential people in music in the 20th century. He's brought more pe- more of the, the kind of the famous artists who might never have had any kind of exposure to the general public. Uh, and because of that, they went on to become massive stars and massive influences. And they, you know, they're still influencing current, modern, both rock and pop music, whatever you want to call it. And so that influence from the work that Alan Lomax did is still filtering through. And even just the fact that he left this legacy... I think he died in the early 2000s, but he left this legacy of thousands and thousands of hours of field recordings of different musicians from literally across the world. So he went, he toured around not only the deep south of America, but went to Hawaii, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, came across to Britain, recorded in Scotland, Ireland, and travelling around and making big collections for, for companies like CBS of different traditional music from all these different areas and started folk revivals in all those different countries hugely influential and was even part of the team that put together the disc which is on the side of the um the voyager space uh, what was it what was it is it like a space probe that went off in 1977 and he chose some of the music that went onto it so the idea was that this space probe was going to be shot off into space and there was a disc on the side of it, and it's, it's still out in space now, this gold disc, with a, a machine that would play it, mm-hmm. with instructions on the machine to play it in English. And it had all this music on that Alan Lomax had curated for it. But there was also speeches by heads of state and all sorts of things. And it was essentially, if alien life forms got hold of this disc, they could then play this disc. How they'd read the, the information, how to, to do it, I'm not really sure. But then the, that would give them an idea of what life on Earth was like, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this disc, it, oh, this, this the Voyager... Elon Musk did something similar. Possibly, I don't know. His his car is orbiting around Mars. Oh right, David Bowie's song. Oh, (laughs) brilliant. That's that's true. But yeah, the Voyager is still out there. It's now gone interstellar, so it's gone into the next solar system. Mm -hmm. And you know, forty odd, forty two years on, that thing is still out there. It's uh, so I, I feel that he's probably one of my main influences, and even. Just the fact that when he was recording these musicians, don't forget the technology he was using at the time was state-of-the-art stuff. And these people had never heard their voices back before. And he <laughs> he became someone who gave a voice to the voiceless, as it were. Um, but they'd never heard their voices back before. And the way that he had to work was he had to shield the, the recording equipment from the performer because it would distract them. So he was having to, you know, recording to wax cylinders or wax discs, sorry, or acetate discs and having to change the record over halfway through the recording mm-hmm. with his hands behind his back so that he wasn't distracting from the performance and from what the uh, the artist was talking about, basically. Massive influence on, on lots of many levels, really. You said you are a tutor and a producer at the moment, but... Mm. Do you have any releases or live gigs coming soon or not so soon? No. Um, no. All right. <laughs> you know, don't Straightforward answer. I don't want to say anything negative, but no. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've, you know, I've, I have gigged a lot in the past. Nothing major really in terms of gigs, but I've travelled around all over the place gigging. I have released stuff in the past. I was in a band in the uh, sort of mid-noughties. 
that we had some releases, but again, nothing major. I've done minor releases of mm-hmm. things that I've been involved with, but yeah, it's, there's nothing coming out soon. It depends whether I get the time to actually do the recording that I want to do and the, and the songwriting, but I'll keep you posted. Okay. Maybe, maybe I'll come back I'll and do waiting. something. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything what happened during your career, kind of a funny story fail? There's lots of things that happen. I think the main thing for me is, you know, in terms of the best thing, and I've not got one specific example, but I think the best thing for me about being a, a producer is when you're a recording engineer, whatever you want to call yourself, is when you're in a session with a band of musicians who are really gelling together. And that might be a group of 16-year-olds who are kind of just finding the sound. It might be a group of really talented, world-class session musicians who are all just vibing off each other in the studio. Mm-hmm. But when that's happening... And everybody's really into it. There's no dramas going on. And you're sat in the control room, looking into a live room with everybody else just really going for it. And everything sounds really cool coming back through the, the mm-hmm. monitors. And you just know it's going to be a really good record. And that's the best feeling in the world. But also, I think the worst thing is when you've, when you, especially when you're in a, a commercial recording studio, because you kind of have to record everybody that comes to the door you know you've got a mortgage to pay you've got children to feed yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. so anything that comes and you know I had those, there was one particular time when I was recording a band booked into the studio and I was kind of listening to them as they were running through the tracks and just thinking this is, isn't going to go well today <laughs> it's going to be a long day at work and when they'd run through the first take I sort of looked I, was, I soloed the bass player and it sounded like someone had just picked up the bass guitar for the first time and we're just playing random notes. I was always wondering, why do people pay for a studio and then come unprepared and take it awful and well, they have to they, do it again? I mean, in, in their heads, maybe they felt they were prepared. Mm. But I was just listening to this bass take and it's just it, it, it was like um, someone who'd never played bass before were maybe about five or six years old and were just, just able to pick it up and were literally just doing random things and putting their fingers in random places. And I suddenly thought, gosh, this is going to be a, it's going to be difficult, difficult to get a, Then, a then you have to tell them, guys, this is just awful. Yeah, like, you so, can't do it. Well, I thought forward. I'd go for another take. And so I went for another take. And then when I, I actually, <laughs> I looked at the bass recording the second time round and then I, I got the, the playlists up and they were actually identical. <laughs> So this is something that's been thought thought about and practiced a lot, but it just sounds like random. And and during the take, it's you know the singer's completely out of tune. Uh, I, I don't want to speak ill of people, but you know it's just one of those situations. Where speak, the, the singer was completely out of tune. The band weren't very good at timing. The drummer was all over the place. It was a difficult session, but it's one of those those moments where I just thought, is this is this a practical joke? <laughs> And you know when you're looking about for a kind of the candid camera in the studio, and someone's and, and eventually, some, you know, within the next ten minutes, someone was going to say, "Ha ha, it's a joke, sorry, We just got these actors together to to to." They you know. were an actors. But no, it was two long days in the studio. Well, <laughs> must have been fun. <laughs> they were lovely people, but it was just uh, it was a it was a long day at work. And in the previous example of where. You know, the vibe's right, everybody's really, really into it. They're all jamming in the studio, bouncing off each other. It sounds really cool. That's not a day at work. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a, just, a, just fun. a day off. But that second example was just mm-hmm. a long day, Sometimes a couple of days at work. not yeah. enough tea to calm your nerves. Absolutely, yeah. Even the tea tasted bad that day. <laughs> so after this story, I imagine your answer to the last question, but do you enjoy what you're doing, like overall, all the things? Or sometimes you like. Ah. I do. I love being in studio situation. I don't like so much being in studios 
late at night anymore because I've still got to get up early for work. I've still got children that get up quite early in the morning. So those days of kind of doing sessions which start at 10 o'clock at night and run through into two, three, four in the morning, I just can't do those anymore. Mm -hmm. Again, it might be an age thing, but also my life has changed. It's moved on. It's now time for you guys to do all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> and do all those those long, late sessions. However, everything that I do, I do really enjoy it when I'm either in a recording studio situation or even just a mixing situation. It's all good. I love being involved in it. But also the tutoring side of it, like I said, I like to see those pennies drop. I like to see students progress and develop. And I also get involved with, you know, recording situations with students like the crosswire sessions that we do at college. I go out with some of the third years on location recording sessions. So, you know, I still get to be very heavily involved in all this stuff. And uh, yeah, I just love it. Great fun. Monday is not a bad day for you. Monday's, not, Monday's just a day in the studio. I've got, I've got second years all day in the studio. I cycle to work faster on a Monday because I just want to get here and crack on <laughs> yeah, another advice for people if you think Monday is a bad day you just should change your job yeah just get a job that you love mm -hmm. and Monday is not a bad day it's not a day at work anymore is it if you can if you can find a, working and doing a job that you love you'll never have to work again mm, yeah famous quote <laughs> yeah is that it Matt are you ha happy with that yes absolutely Brilliant. thank you for coming for doing this you're very welcome I've really enjoyed it thank you very much So it's a bit strange being in a, in a small space with you like this, but yeah, it's good. <laughs> Simon was so kind, he shared some of his music. Are you ready? Wild, wild tune, but I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. There's two girls and they drink vodka. Dirt cheap, dirty vodka. There's two girls. One's blonde and gorgeous, and the other one's got dark hair and dark eyes, and they drink vodka. Dirt cheap, dirty vodka. Dirty jokes, dirty laughs, dirty girls. Every night these girls dress up in some Trinian's fancy dress uniforms and they play at being dirty girls. There's two girls and they drink vodka. Dirt cheap, dirty vodka. There's two girls and they drink vodka. Dirt cheap, dirty vodka. They go to parties and laugh the house down and snog boys on the sofa. Every five minutes, the blonde one flings her glass in the air, knocking all the boys off the sofa. And they fill their glasses with more dirty vodka. Someone is sick in the bathroom and someone takes a photo of the blonde one's crutch, but they don't remember that much. There's two girls and they drink vodka. Dirt cheap, dirty vodka. These girls go to a party, and this time they've got a few more quid in their purses than most weekends. So this time they buy archers and mix it with stolen lemonade. They get there early, and the one with dark eyes is wearing a dirty new dress. They get drunk real quick and forget where they've stuffed the bottle. But this night, something happens. 
the one with dark eyes snogs a boy on the sofa that he says he doesn't like dirty girls who drink too much dirty vodka and the one with dark eyes tells him they're only ever playing playing at being dirty girls and the blonde one knows there won't be any more dirty vodka and they tell themselves they're always waiting for this moment there's two girls and they drink vodka dirt cheap dirty vodka there's two girls and they drink vodka dirt cheap dirty vodka there's two girls and they drink And that's all for today. If you're interested in my work or if you want your podcast to be edited by Marvelous Audio, visit our website at marvelousaudio.com and check my Instagram. Links in the description. But for now, thank you very much for joining me today and I hope I will see you in two weeks' time in another episode of The Story of My Drive. The Story of My Drive with Ryan Sayer. With Ryan Sayer.